I'm, uh, I'm dealing with stage fright all over again. I had uh, I'd gotten very accustomed, much to my uh, chagrin, but I'm very accustomed to looking at this tiny little red light that says, you're on, go, speak. And uh, Fran and Steve and others that have helped us record the messages all these times have been very patient, very kind. Um, I, I just want to I want to highlight Fran for a second because um, we didn't know Fran. Fran is uh, Dory Sproul's brother, so we all know Dory really well. I knew Fran a little bit. Said hi to him, knew his daughter, that kind of thing. And and then we were in a pinch last year during the retirement service. We wanted to get some video feed going and stuff. And Ron Dunbar said, "Call Fran. He knows what he's doing." So we did. And ever since then, he has been. I think one of the uh, the human saviors to this whole thing. Had we not been prepared the way that we were, I don't think we would have had nearly the the uh, stability and the the sustenance, if you will, or the sustaining, if you will, um, for the ministry. And so many people have been watching online, and the effectiveness and the reach of the Word of God is just continuing to spread. So, Fran, I want to thank you very much for all your dedication and uh, all the work that goes into that. Um, Steve Dameron, as well as our administrator, said, well, I'm supposed to help you administrate things. So he's even like scrolling the, the cues for me as I'm looking at the computer screen. And he's sitting over there doing all these kinds of things. And um, the staff and just their flexibility, all of those that have recorded welcomes for us before the service would start and moving around their work schedules in order to be here and stuff. And so the flexibility, the creativity, the the elders that have been available for the um, table talk interviews that we did and things, all of that stuff has has allowed for us to um, provide something that we hope would be engaging and um, and, and still full of great spiritual biblical content so uh just thank you all for that and uh for the staff keeping uh, us all sane during this time i know we're not out of the woods yet but this today marks such a shift for us we feel like we're getting our church back if you will and um and so it's been very discouraging to be able to to have to minister without a lot of feedback. And I don't even mean like the ego feedback. I just mean the response of seeing the light come on, the response of seeing people grow. And we've missed that greatly over the many months. And so um, the staff just keeping us all encouraged and, and rolling with the punches and things is just incredible. Um, the worship team, I don't know if you guys realize this because we heard from people, hey, the music's getting repetitive. The worship team came and sent, uh, spent three different days. They recorded over 40 songs. Um, to have us be able to offer the variety and the things that we did. And so a lot of you have said, you know, Gus needs to change his shirt. But but it wasn't because he was wearing the same one every week. It was a very long recording session and stuff. And so we've uh, we've done that. Some people were getting slick. They were like, oh, I know what weekend you did this based on the shirt John Phillips was wearing or something like that. So, um, But anyway, it's just been a strange season. But faith has stuck with us. And, um, and, and, and all of those involved from our leadership team down are just really, really appreciative of the support and, and all that that, uh, has meant to us. So I wanted to make sure we didn't go any further without saying those things. I'm assuming now that we're, we have our feed into our other rooms. And I know that so many of you wanted to be in the auditorium to be back at church and to have that feeling. So in order to make up for that loss, we have sent shiatsu massage chairs to the youth building. 
and then we have those little, I don't know what kind of fish they are. Tom found them for us, but those little ponds that you put your feet in and they come and nibble your feet to uh, give you that. So that's in the B. Lee Center. So uh, folks in those rooms, you can enjoy that. So uh, for those of you at home uh, that are watching this online still, uh, we thank you so much for staying tuned in and staying connected to the body of faith. Um, because you can't be here yet uh, for either logistical reasons, because we only opened up one service this weekend, or perhaps you're not ready to come back in public, uh, we just want to thank you for remaining a part of faith. And, uh, and, and the, the diversity of thought and opinion has been incredible through all of this. And um, the one thing that it's taught us is to show grace to one another, not knowing their individual circumstances, their mindsets, or their backgrounds. And, and it's my personal belief that as a church of Jesus Christ, we have to grow in our understanding of those things. And, uh, and so I just want to thank all of you as the body of Christ for uh, enduring through this time. It's not easy to do and, uh, and, and being patient, but also um, weighing in with your ideas, your thoughts, and your concerns. I want to start our time because we're not going to have a very long service this morning. We've got a lot of kids in the house and and trying to make sure that we're not um, stretching this out too long. But we're also going to be getting to communion later. So we're really looking forward to sharing that with our brothers and sisters and having each of our locations lead their own communion and things. But um, the thought occurred to me as I was getting ready for this week as we're diving back into First Peter. We've been on it now for a few weekends is I was re- thinking back to a car that I had when I was in high school. It was kind of the family hand-me-down. It was a little bit different circumstances, but I was able to drive this car for about a year or so. I can't remember if I was 16 or 17, um, but, but when you see the image of this car, you'll know why all the girls wanted to ride in that car, right? The Plymouth Horizon was the, um, dare I say, the babe magnet. No, it was none of those things. It was terrible. It was ugly. It was transportation. And when you're 16 or 17, you guys remember, it's like, has it got four wheels? If I step on the gas, will it get me there? And you're fine. So much so I was even blinded to the fact when I got it probably in the summertime, I didn't care that it didn't have heat. Even though I lived in central Maine, living in Auburn, it's like it was cold there too. I know it's south of here, but it was cold there. And... I, I remember one January morning, I would pick up my buddy, Ray, and we would drive to school. We went to a Christian school in Turner. So we were about a half, a, half an hour down the road, down Route 4. And so it was cold. His job was to take the ice scraper and to clear off the inside windshield for me so I could see the lines. And, um, and then we'd hope we'd make it and that sort of thing. There was no heat in this thing at all. And I remember being so cold one time in this vehicle that I vowed to never complain about how hot a day is going to be ever again. I don't care if I'm in the middle of an August day and it's 104 degrees and it's muggy and there's no relief, the AC's broken. I still have, since I was 17 years old, have never said it's too hot. I'm surprising myself. I'm not bragging to you. I'm like, the one commitment I've been able to see through really well in life is that I haven't complained about a hot day. And I'm not saying I wasn't tempted. I'm not saying that next week I won't go, why did you have to say that? And then I had to say it in public. So now you're holding me accountable. But the point is, is that because of a commitment I made as a silly 17-year-old, because I was so cold and I hate the cold so much, that I vowed I will never hate summer as much as I hate winter. No matter how brutal summer gets. Now, 
because of that vow, what I'm, what I'm getting to here is in our passage in first Peter is that you and I need to begin the things that we do with the end in mind. We have a journey. We have a goal set before us and these things won't happen haphazardly. I won't just not complain about summer because I'm just that kind of chill person. It's because I said something that I'm on record for. And I said, man, why do I have to say that? Now I got to commit to it. That so many of the things that we need to do in life have to begin with the end in mind. Jesus gives us this principle in Luke 14, verse 28. He says, which one of you, when he wants to build a tower, does not first sit down and calculate the cost to see if he has enough to complete it? A couple weeks ago, when we started this series of first Peter, I asked the, 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 in the first week, how are you faring coming out of the COVID hole? Do you trust in the Lord's provision, even though you can't see where this is all going? Did you find ways to serve others and treat their needs as important as your own, as the scripture says? Were you patient with the things that were beyond your control, the things that you couldn't change? I know we're not done. I know we're just coming back to some sense of normal. You look around, you're like, this is not normal. So I know we're not there yet. But as you come out of these things, have you asked yourself these questions? Have you taken inventory? These questions aren't meant to bury us. This isn't, as we're going to see from our text, not to prove that we've failed, but rather to force us to take inventory and say, when it comes around again, or when it gets more difficult, or when the next whatever it is, fill in the blank hits, Will I come through it differently than I came through the last time? The point of our text this morning is going to be that living hope always keeps the end in view. That's what we're going to see from first Peter. He's anticipating a certain outcome. And we're going to see that this is going to make all the difference as we dive into verse six of chapter one. Let's do that together. Scripture says, in this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you've been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it's tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you've not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, You believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. I'm already missing my teleprompter. Man, I got to flip my own sheets. What's going on here? I can't deal with this suffering. First Peter's arriving just in time. Let's look at some of the themes that we've introduced a couple weeks ago. Peter is writing this letter to elect exiles, the diaspora, the the spread out ones, the ones who are dispersed in what we said is modern day Turkey, but they're in all of these different regions now out of place. And Peter says, I'm going to put on them a label that was reserved for God's children coming out of Israel. I'm going to lead them out of slavery and captivity and lead them into a land of their own. They are the dispersed. They are the elect God's chosen. So now Peter is starting to call the church of Jesus Christ, even Gentiles, the same thing. And so this is going to be the constant backdrop The recipients of this letter are elect exiles. And we've said that that's something that we need to start grasping more in our life to learn how to relate to. 
suffering and trials is certainly going to be a common theme as we're going forward. The word conduct or the manner of life, what we actually do with who we are and what we say we believe is so important to Peter that out of the many times that it's mentioned in the New Testament, half of them are in this letter. It would seem that Peter cares more about the way we do things than always getting everything we do right. And that's something that we really need to pay attention to right now because with differing opinions, with differing experiences and all these kinds of things, the conduct, the manner of our life, the things, uh, are, the things that we do aren't necessarily always as important as the way that we do them. And hope, living hope, is the key theme of this book. To us, hope often has this wavering tone of uncertainty. But biblically speaking, hope places our attention on God and, and fills us with this eager or with this confident expectation that I'm not just crossing my fingers and I'm not just kind of wishing on the, uh, from, from the inside of me. I'm actually expecting this thing to happen because of who's promised that it will. The key task in the Christian life is for you and me to learn from this to move from this wavering kind of hope, I hope it works, to something more certain. That's why we're calling this part of the letter, our sermon series in it called Anchored Hope. This is a living and trustworthy expectation given to us in the power of Christ. Last week, Pastor Gary did an excellent job kind of breaking down verses three through five for us. And one statement that he made, I hung on to and I had to write it down. He said, our hope is an inheritance that will never pass away. When you and I think of inheritance, we think all sorts of things like I haven't built one enough, a big enough one up to give to my kids or we see so many trust fund kids who have been given something that they weren't prepared for or ready for and they squander it. And I love Pastor Gary's statement here that the hope that we have, this living hope is in such great supply that it will never pass away. We can't run it out. We can't run it to its end beyond what Jesus can supply. We're going to continue to see forms of, of government turmoil and, and, and oppression and perhaps attacks on our religious freedom and these kinds of things. We are facing continued uncertain... How many times have we heard uncertain times? Every radio ad. In these uncertain... I get it. The only thing that's certain is you're going to say uncertain times. But disease and, and sickness and those kinds of things, violence we're watching on our screens if we're not seeing it firsthand, unrest... All of these things have to be anchored in a hope that is more than just fleeting, more than just what the problems that this world thinks it can fix. And so Peter is encouraging in the diaspora, he's encouraging positional, political and spiritual exiles to some extent to anchor their hope in something far more trustworthy than what this world can offer. This week, one of our own was coming across a, um, uh, a devotional that was emailed to them that was on this topic, on this passage of scripture. And, and bear with me for a moment because I'm going to quote some big chunks of this devotional because I thought it was so helpful for us to understand because we're still building the backdrop as we're just three weeks into this letter. We still got some more background to do. And one of the stark contrasts um, that we need to understand is that Peter wasn't writing to a group of people who just kind of needed some tweaking in their faith. 
Peter was writing to people who were, were, were living in a context with no hope and, and full of despair, to which I think we can probably relate to more living in this world in 2020. Uh, Derek Caldwell from Ravi Zacharias International Ministries, based out of Atlanta, said this. The Apostle Peter spoke into a situation not unlike ours in the first epistle. This ancient world would never forgot, would, uh, world never forgot that the specter of death was roaming the streets. And they did not yet have the new atheists of our own day who attempt to create an imaginative world where a future of eternal nothingness is somehow quite beautiful, which we know is a tough sell. Despite the political and military progress during this time, and despite the bright philosophical minds, there was still an undeniable hopelessness. The gods were thought either to be capricious or cold and disconnected. Philosophy may have told a rational logos in the universe, but it was not personal or salvific. That deep-seated desire in the human heart for divine love had no object for its fulfillment. In some circles, it turned instead, as we ourselves do, to distractions of progress and pleasure. Some Greco-Roman authors ridiculed hope, which they considered to be delusionary. See if that sounds familiar. Sophocles wrote that it was just best to not be born. And if you did have the misfortune of being born, then dying as as soon as possible was the next best thing. This is the climate that the diaspora were trying to build a work in to stay encouraged in their faith in. Theologian Karen Jobes explains that in Greek thought, the despair of this life is is followed only by the unending night of death. The existential despair in this life and the bleak view of afterlife in Greek thought killed any hope one might seek. Therefore, hope among pagans was dead. Isn't this encouraging? This is why we gave busy bags to the kids because it was a little, little dark. Life was bleak. And the reality of something better after death was foundationless. Life was only temporarily good for those born well. But even that was but a smokescreen of the fate we all share at the end. And it is into this darkness, it is in the midst of this despair that Peter writes what is perhaps our key verse in the entire letter in chapter 5, verse 10. He says, after you've suffered a little while. So rather than an insult that might be to us who have suffered, we go, little? Come on, this has been going on for years or decades or my my whole life has been this. Peter speaks this little flicker, this light of hope to a culture that thinks this is all there is. We suffer all the day long, all the year long, and then when we die, it's over. And he says, no, no, this is just, this is just brief. This goes away. The God of all grace who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. How fresh that must have been to the ears of a hopeless culture. Let me just continue for a couple more moments from Derek Caldwell. Leaning into this despair, the hope of the early Christians truly perplexed the ancient mindset. Their hope transcended persecution and martyrdom, and it was ugly. And for the sake of the child, uh, child ears in the audience, we won't go any further than that. At some point, we will talk about it. But if you're curious, you need to look into it because persecution um, it, of, of the ugliest form was beginning at this time at the hands of Nero. One pagan critically fomented, oh, wondrous folly and incredible audacity. 
They despite present torments, although they fear those which are uncertain in future. And while they fear to die after death, they do not fear to die for the present. So does a deceitful hope soothe their fear with the solace of a revival. In this letter to men and women, living in between these worldviews, Peter speaks into this hopelessness, the words of eternal life. The New Testament records how converts could often be swayed back to their old life after all in times of suffering and uncertainty. Why be deprived of any and all pleasures one can receive, especially since this may be our only life? Peter reminds us that these are all just illusions and distractions. Death will still come. In his letter, he constantly juxtaposes the dead from the living, the perishable from the imperishable, dead hope from living hope through a living God. So it's because of this backdrop, it's because of this living hope that's going to bleed through every portion of the scriptures that we'll study together. Let's extract a few portions of, of, of thought, encouragement, and direction from the few verses that we've read. The first that I'd like to extract is that I think Peter is telling us to seek biblically, biblical joy for our spirit, to seek it. I'd like to emphasize every word in there, but this is becoming the, the challenge of the Christian faith is what we set our affections towards. And so I use the word seek on purpose because I can tell you that we're supposed to have biblical joy. And you go, yeah, it's a biblical fact. I can find the verses. I can, I can see it all through Philippians. I can see it in other passages of scripture. I know joy is available and exists and it's our opportunity as believers. But do I often seek the true biblical definition of joy defending my heart from the worldly definition of happiness. Seek biblical joy for your spirit. There's an exuberance to it. That's what I'd like to call the inner shivers. It's what I, what I think happens around Christmas time in my household and in so many households that have little kids that about two weeks out, you start thinking, why is it just getting louder in here? Why, why can't my wife and I hear ourselves talk to each other? Why has our lives gotten suddenly busier just with the, the kind of the chaos in the house and everything? They say, oh yeah, even though our kids aren't running around saying it's almost Christmas, it's almost Christmas, it's almost Christmas, everything in their fibers coming out of their skin, it's almost Christmas. There's this inner shiver thing that is happening that that is a description and a demonstration of biblical joy that it is the kind of thing that's difficult for us to contain. Peter had said in verse six, in this you rejoice. And there's no way to put a cap or a limit on that word. When you study it, you see it's just kind of like jumping and kicking and, and freaking out, even if it's coming from the inside. Though now for a little while, if necessary, you've been grieved. There's the juxtaposition. So that as your faith is tested to be found genuine, that these things will result in, verse 8, that you would rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory. True joy, not this happiness that we're always talking about in church and this thing that we're trying to define biblically, but true joy needs an object. It needs something to set its affection on, set its attention on, and the text gives us what that true joy is fixated on. It is this revelation of Jesus Christ. I want to be as honest with you as I can. Uh, when I see Jesus, this is what, none of us know what we're going to be like when we see him. 
And a lot of times people say things like I'm starting to say, and we have no idea. When I see Jesus, I'm pretty sure that my first thought, if I can be very candid with you, is he's real. I wasn't wrong. Everything that I that I, I said I believed, everything I dedicated my life to, and and he's here. He's real. And, and if you doubt that expression or that experience, anytime you see somebody that's even remotely famous, you go, they're real? I, you know intellectually they're real. You know the truth of it. But experientially, and what happens to make us as human as we truly are, is this is breaking down of, I can't, I can't, he's, he's here. It's him. It's you. That this object of my joy is that I hold on to the fact that as he appears and I see him, everything that I doubted, everything that was ridiculed about what I stood for or believed in, everything that I couldn't understand from the pages of scripture I read, everything comes into focus at the revelation, which is the appearing of Jesus. If I'm starting with the end in mind, I have to understand how broken I am as a, as a human being and how prone to doubt I really am. That that appearance won't just be like, finally, what took you so long? That it will be much more, I, I, don't, I don't deserve to be in your space. I, I don't even know if you ask me why. You know, we always heard the question, if God asked you, why should I let you into my heaven? I, I have an answer, but I don't think I'd be able to recall it when the time came. We also see from the scriptures that we are to desire that testing have its perfect result in our life. I love some of the words that Peter gives here because he doesn't just put a Christian smile on everything. He doesn't ignore the pain of suffering. He says that we are grieved, that we are tested. He uses the gold analogy and says, even though it's being burned by fire, And he's saying the result is far better. So he must be even saying that the trial feels even worse than fire. You might remember from our study in 2 Corinthians 4 that Paul had said in verses 8 and 9, we are afflicted in every way. He wasn't sugarcoating. He says we're afflicted in every way, but we're not crushed. We are perplexed, but not driven to despair. We're we're persecuted, but not forsaken. We're struck down, but not destroyed. Peter says that these are the various trials of the things that we're going to go through and various or varied also has been looked at as being many colored. You think about how all the I'm, I'm colorblind. It doesn't mean I see black and white like dogs are alleged to. I do see colors. I just don't know if John's wearing a pink shirt or a blue shirt. I'm going to go with blue, but I'm not sure you can square it away with me later. But what happens in like, I'm picturing like a kaleidoscope where the colors and the shifts and everything melds together and and what color can do to to give such great diversity and just a a mind-blowing experience of not being able to, you know, because I'm colorblind, I'm asking people a lot, what color is that? And it's amazing to me how how much that question stumps people that can see it perfectly. Eh, It's got a purplish kind of colors are varied. And just like the many colors that we see, so are the many forms of trial and testing that our lives take. 
We could all say we're going through some form of financial struggle in this room, but I don't know to what extent it's really impacting you. I don't know the, the amount or the, or the, the, um, the end result, what the real threat is because it's many colored. It's varied. And so Peter kind of lets us off the hook and says, don't just minimize and don't just be like, ah, shucks, my suffering is nothing compared to your, and it's true in human life. There is a difference. It's good for us to stay level, but at the same time, it doesn't always look that way to the Lord. Your suffering is your suffering, and he has a plan and intent to bring you through it. Later on in the letter, in chapter 4, verse 10, Peter says to us, as each has received a gift, use it to serve one another. As God's good stewards of God's varied, multicolored, able to meet your diverse need with his diverse aspect of grace. So we have uh, <clears throat> a diverse problem, a varied problem, and we have God's multifaceted, multicolored. I can find an answer to that and make this work is what the Lord's saying. But I like what Peter does for us. He doesn't ignore the, the problem of pain and suffering, but he appropriately minimizes it for us. He says, it's puny. It's wee bitty. Your trial. Don't you need somebody in your life sometimes to tell you, just get over it. You, you need those people to be like, I'm sorry you're going through this. Hey, cry on my shoulder. Let's do this for a while and everything. Walk you through it. Eventually you need that person to say, okay, enough. <laughs> Move on. There are people starving in other parts. You know, we do those comparisons to, to move us, to shake us out of our, 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 our locked in selfish obsession with our own pain. So Peter says, this is, guys, hang on, this is just a little while. This isn't going to last forever. He even says in verse 7, he says, so that the tested genuineness of your faith. He doesn't expect us to be failing at this. It's more precious than gold that perishes. Verse 9, he even says, so that it would obtain the outcome of our faith the salvation of our souls. This is what's on the other side of this. You don't need to get so tripped up in the pain that you're experiencing that you somehow forget that these things are promised to you and are waiting you on the other side. All of the testing, the trials and things that we go through, they have a purpose, they have a plan. And I know that sounds so cliche. I know somebody's told you that and you're like, please, would you just endure this with me a little bit? Can you not give me the biblical lesson? And I know that's what we often do. But it's important for us to, to be uh, um, encouraged in the heart of our hearts to understand that all of our trials, all of our tests have a purpose. We know that the testing or the, the squeezing nature of the church itself reveals who the faithless are. We know that there are those, as the scripture says, as Jesus said in Luke 8, 13, that they believe for a while, but as the seed was falling on stony ground, it, it took no real root. And in a time of testing, they just fell away. When the, when the heat was on, they said, this isn't for me. I liked church. I liked Christianity when it gave me the vibe, when it gave me the, the hope of something else. But as soon as it became work, no, 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 that's not why I joined. So it does have a tendency to reveal the faithless, but it also reveals the faithful. That's why I like what, what Peter is saying here, that your, your faith is being tested to prove that it's genuine to God and to others. 
Paul had told the, the Galatians about his own suffering and said that this is a proof. I, my going through the suffering is something that's revealed how faithful you are. In uh, Galatians 4.14, he says, Though my condition was a trial to you, you did not scorn or despise me, but receive me as an angel of God, as, as Christ Jesus. Our trials can actually prove to us, because again, if we're being honest, Sometimes we wonder how much of in the faith we are and how much we're living by. We, especially those that are growing in Christ have a tendency to see all the things that their shortcomings reveal and knowing how much grace of Jesus they're falling on. And these tests and these, these endurance measures prove to us, I am actually walking with Christ. We understand from another pastor's scripture that the apostles, after they had suffered, walked away and they were rejoicing. They were freaking out that we got to suffer for the name of Christ. It's almost like, hey, we count too. I didn't know we could do it, but we did. And he saw us through. Now we're like our savior. It reveals our own faithfulness. But more importantly than all of those things, trials are meant and intended to reveal God's faithfulness. First Corinthians ten thirteen. We know the passage. No temptation has overtaken you that is common to man, but God is faithful. Not you and me. We don't have it. It's not there. And he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability because he is in control. But with the temptation, he will also provide, he will provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. As painful as trials are, they have an intended outcome. There is a point that it's going to. It wants us to arrive at that destination. It's not going to happen haphazardly. We don't know how long the the trial will last. We don't know how hot the heat will get. It's been said that the Eastern goldsmith would keep the metal in the furnace until he could see his own face reflected in it. And tell me that isn't what Jesus would be up to as you and I are being burned by the fires of trial and testing to be able to see his likeness in us. But also I think Peter would encourage us to live, to promote the full glory of the Lord. He had told us that towards the end of verse seven, that we might be found to result in praise and glory and honor as he's piling it all on this laudation, this, this expression of how great he is that going through all of these things, it would just pile on top of pile on top of pile, the fame of the Lord Jesus Christ to promote his glory above all things. Worship is such a, popular expression in a popular subject in church. And, and we know that, that pastors are often um, picking on the fact that we always reduce worship to music and, you know, praise is more than just the half hour we spend together on a Sunday and that sort of thing. That's not even my point, though it kind of is. That's why I said it driving by it real quick. That, that praise is deeper than this. And it's, and it's not just about the music, but it's certainly a major part of it. My point is that praise without sacrifice is disingenuous. David had even said in 2 Samuel 24, 24, he was being offered. He wanted to offer praise offerings to his Lord. And they said, here, take these. And he says, I'm paying you for it. He says, I will not offer burnt offerings to the Lord, my God, that cost me nothing. 
And there's a principle for us in there. We don't know all that's expected. And sometimes human beings set up arbitrary costs and sufferings in order to prove their dedication and worship. We're not talking about some of us guys are out in the hallway talking this morning about asceticism. And that's not really what we're talking about. But instead, we're saying that I expect my praise to cost me something. Our, our cost could be as small as I didn't get the room I wanted on Sunday morning for worship. All of you guys can be like, that's right, they didn't. I'm sure they're laughing in the other buildings as we speak. <clears throat> or it could be something so great as we've heard in the other countries and things where people would have to travel days in order to congregate together and worship through alligator-infested rivers, all these kinds of things that we hear about <clears throat> that really do happen in other parts of the world so that people know this is my sacrifice of praise. Also, I think we can say that worship is an exchange of values. It's where we get the word worship. It is worth-ship. It is me saying what I currently have or what I currently value no longer matters in light of what I would be taking on by giving my life down to the glory of Jesus Christ. In speaking of Moses in the great Hall of Faith passage in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 26, it says, he considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth then the treasures of Egypt, those of you that know the story of Moses growing up in the splendid households of Egypt, for he was looking to the reward. And, and lastly, I would say that our, our interests in terms of worship, our interests grow as we mature. They, they grow from, dare I say, our own personal salvation, that which we gather. Because you and I all came to this. Because somebody said your soul could be saved, that your destiny in heaven could be fixed, that your avoidance of the fires of hell could be promised to you. And so we said, that's the intriguing part. The intriguing part wasn't, hey, surrender your life for somebody else's fame. And by the way, forget yourself the whole time. That isn't necessarily in our early stages, the intriguing part. So we come to it for the promise of the salvation that we get that never goes away, but then we, we mature past that because now promoting him and living for him and less of me, more of him becomes much more valuable to me, much more desirable to me. Rescue me turns into shine through me. So in closing, believers are not meant to meander through life aimlessly. Everything we do counts everything we fix our hopes on, everything we make our statements and make our commitments, it all counts. You won't haphazardly finish strong. We need to begin with the end in mind. We need to begin to value the pain and the suffering and the setbacks along the way, knowing that they are producing a far weightier outcome than the happiness that this world is just trying to chase down, that it so often eludes them. I just want to give you a, a quick story about something that happened uh, in my early adulthood. I, many of you will know Vernon Miller, and you know that uh, elderly gentleman was a father figure to me and stuff. And I've said to you a couple of times before that you really didn't, in my estimation, get to see the best version of Vernon Miller because the best version of Vernon Miller was being a wife to uh, husband to Kitty Miller. And Kitty was a strong-willed, proper, slender little German lady who knew everything about world events and current affairs. And she had an opinion about it all, and she knew her Bible, and she was 
but she was dear and submissive and trusting of her husband, her great warrior and valiant leader, Vernon Miller. They were never able to have children, and so they invested their lives in other people that they adopted as their own. That's how I came along and stuff and, and, and benefited really from their parenting. But Kitty had a respiratory condition that kept her home. Uh, I think as he knew her early on, she had a job at MIT as an accountant and things like that. But eventually she had to say, I can't be out in public anymore. Those of you that know Vernon know that's he just lives to be in public. He didn't like staying home. He just slept outside of Jorgensen's in order to show up at eight in the morning if he could. So this man who needed to be out and about with everybody and being social in that for the cause of Christ and for all of his discipleship opportunities instead said, my wife can't be without me that much. So I'm going to do my daily work. I'm going to earn a little bit of a paycheck and I'm going to go home to her. And then when I get to fellowship with the saints once in a while, I'll do that occasionally when someone meets me needs me. But for the most part, I'm doing all my ministry by phone because I don't want to leave her side. And she had some certain phobias and fears and everything. So he'd have to uh, run home and tend to those things and stuff. But what I want you to see is that on the night that she passed away, I got a phone call in the middle of the night. Uh, Kitty's gone. And so I said, hey, can I come over? He said, sure. So we're in his living room. She hadn't yet been um, taken out of the house. And so I was trying to keep him occupied so he didn't have to be involved in all of that and stuff. And, and, uh, and I just remember he was walking out of that bedroom and he was just talking like, yeah, I got to get this done. And he just kind of stops and he goes, praise God. I never complained. And, and it was like this realization of the thing that he determined to do some 27, 28 years before that had become automatic and a habit to him he realized he just crossed a finish line. It wasn't because he was gritting his teeth because he didn't want to be with her. He loved her to pieces, but he didn't believe he'd be able to keep his commitment and he didn't know what it would really take. And all of the sacrifices and all of the being pulled back home and all of those things that he gave up. And yet for the joy of receiving that accolade that you did it, you never complained about the times you had to stay home. You never complained about the things you couldn't do or watching normal couples in church sitting together all those years. I never complained. I made it, he said. It floored me and it impacted my life and it will impact my life for the rest of my days. What separates fans of Jesus or fans of the church from true followers is how much you and I value finishing strong. And our willingness to strive in, in joy, the kind that's exuberant, the kind that wants to come out, even if it's tough, even if it's painful, even if it means, and it usually does, passing on the pleasures that most will spend their life trying to obtain. We will be looking to Jesus, as Hebrews 12, 2 says, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross despising the shame and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Would you bow your heads and pray with me? Lord, I want to thank you, Father, for giving us your word. I thank you, Lord, for giving us example of the saints gone before us. I thank you, Lord, for the plight of the saints all across the globe right now that do not have to really take these things to heart necessarily because they are living in them day in and day out. Lord, you are conditioning our American culture to understand what these resistance levels are, what this suffering means. Prepare us wisely, Lord. Help us to, to start this process seeing the end in mind. Trust you for your grace to cover us in the many, many ways that it can when we fall short, and we will. 
And so I thank you, Lord, for being so gracious to your people, for being so merciful to our stubborn hearts. But I thank you, Lord, for the joy of unity. And I thank you, Lord, for bringing us together this morning. I pray you'd bless all of those who have gone through this study with us this week, Lord, and given faith to endure and eyes to see the times that we're in. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, I-